Welcome to the Rock Church. If you're new here, my name is Steele Crosswhite. I am one of the pastors here at the church. Tonight we are continuing on in our study through the book of Romans. We are on part 22. Can you believe it? Part 22, we're looking at chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. I've entitled this talk, Jackal, Hyde, and Jesus. This weekend, we have come to one of the most famous sections found in the entire book of Romans. It is a descriptive passage highlighting the tension found in our Christian faith between the desire of what the Bible calls our old nature or our flesh and our new nature and identity that is gifted by the Spirit of God. As I prepared for this talk, I've gleaned from a number of awesome resources like Gospel and Life and Tim Keller, William McDonald, Believer's Commentary, Romans for You, Real Faith Ministry. Calvary Chapel. It has been a very busy several weeks for me and a lot of fun. So I've got a bunch to share with you guys tonight. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for all that is happening in the life of our church. Thank you that we are on part 22 of our sermon series. I ask Jesus that you would speak through me by the power of the Holy Spirit to your kids that you brought here, that you love, and that we would walk away different, more in love with you, and more in love with one another. I ask God for confidence. I ask God for clarity and timeliness. I ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to read through the entirety of the verses, and then I'll break it down, okay? So let's do this together here. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 15 is where we're going to start. We know, the Apostle Paul says, that the law is spiritual, But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, he says. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do, he goes on to say. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members." What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now maybe you've read it before in the famous novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We know there's a statement that Dr. Henry Jekyll makes that shows to a great degree that very famous story and tale is inspired by these passages of scripture we just read because when Henry Jekyll for the first time takes the magic potion and he finds himself becoming the evil Edward Hyde, this is what he says. He says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil. 
it's a tip of the hat to these passages where Paul is talking about the two selves here, in a sense, fighting within an inner conflict between good and evil. And I know it's probably been a while, but you remember how this story goes. Maybe you've seen a movie. Henry Jekyll has come up with a magic potion. He calls it a metaphysical chemistry. And the potion will enable the good in him and the evil in him to become two selves free from each other. He thinks that that's what's going to help because the problem, he thinks to himself, with the human condition is neither of the two selves lets the other one really enjoy life. The evil self can't get over the guilt from the good self, and the good self can't get over the temptations from the evil self. So he drinks this potion, and the story goes that he splits. And in the story, he finds, first of all, the evil part, like we just read, is much more evil than he thought, tenfold more evil. And he does terrible things going on to murder people. And one day, he is sitting on a bench at Regent's Park, and he actually just becomes Edward Hyde from Dr. Jekyll. He finds he has to take the potion now just to become the good Dr. Henry Jekyll. He finds his evil in him is not only more evil than he ever thought, but more powerful than he ever thought, so he loses control. And eventually, evil Edward Hyde only takes the potion to become Jekyll just to hide from the police. Of course, at the very end of the story, if you remember, you're actually reading the last will and the testament to the very end, which Henry Jekyll says this, this is the last time I will be Dr. Henry Jekyll because I've run out of the potion. I have to take the potion to become Henry Jekyll. I automatically become the evil Edward Hyde when the potion wears off. And I cannot find the ingredients anymore, so this is my last will and testament. The story goes that he becomes Hyde for the last time, and Hyde, knowing he could no longer hide as Dr. Jekyll, kills himself rather than let the police catch him for all the murders he's done. Now, <laughs> what's the point of this story? The point of the story is to make you and I, as the readers, look at ourselves and ask this question, are we really that bad? If there was a, po a potion that we could take, are we actually that evil inside? Is it actually that powerful? And we know that this is just a story, but it simply highlights this fundamental truth that the Apostle Paul is speaking of, namely, the reality that in every single one of us, there really is a deep abyss, a deep core of evil, or what the Bible calls the flesh. That passage that we just read in Romans actually says that, and if we're honest, it troubles people. It has troubled people for years. And here's the reason why. There's a popular paradigm, and you guys have heard it, maybe you've bought into it, that the average person holds thinking about evil and good when it comes to our population as a whole. Many people believe, on one hand, that there are a small number of spiritual giants, people who are just, for whatever reason, you know, really, really good. They're so wonderful, they're virtuous, they're spiritual, they become saints, maybe they're just born that way, they write books, hospitals are named after them. There's a small number of really, really good people. And that same population believes that there's a small number of really evil people, you know, totalitarian dictators, genocidal maniacs, serial killers, but most of us are pretty, pretty good. Those are the extremes, really, really great, really, really evil. Most of us are just pretty good. But what we're reading is that Paul absolutely destroys that paradigm. Because in history, where is Paul? When you think of Paul, history declares that he is a spiritual giant we all have to agree about that. A lot of people in the church, even today, Christians, have this paradigm in spite of what the Bible teaches, and they look at Paul and they go, how can a man of God talk like that? What's he talking about? Look at what Paul is saying. 
It's not an immature Christian. This is not a non-Christian. This is not just a pastor of some small church on the corner. This is a spiritual giant. And we just got done reading things like him saying, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do for what I want to do. I don't do, but I do what I hate to do for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that is in me, that is what I keep on doing. So people go back and they go, whoa, 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 what is he saying? Strong Christians shouldn't say that. that. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. There's got to be some victory. People aren't that bad. Christians aren't supposed to be that bad, not leaders. And Paul just smashes through it. And he says, I see in me that there is this flesh, that there's this desperately evil thing that happens inside of me. I am riddled with sin and temptation. There's a horrible evil that lurks in my heart. So clearly the first point for all of us that we need to come face to face with is this. As Christians, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit is real. This is not pretend. It is real in our lives. There is a war that is going on in the heart of every single Christian. Again, the Apostle Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And in Galatians, he says it like this, very clearly. For the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, just as a brief overview, for the past several weeks, we've been reminded that the law, God's law, is his standard. It reveals to you and I how God wants us to live. His law provides boundaries for what is good and right, and when we obey those boundaries, it brings him great glory and us profound good and joy. But the Apostle Paul has also revealed that because God's law is perfect, it also reveals how sinful we are. In fact, it says, Paul says, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't even have known of my sin. I like how Pastor Caleb said it last week. He said, the law is like a mirror. It reflects who is looking into it. If someone hands you a mirror and you are covered in filth, it's not the mirror's fault. It's just showing you that you need to take a shower. So Paul says the law revealed to him all of the sin that was actually in his heart. It just called out what was going on in his heart. So the law then is God's universal standard of what is right and wrong. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. It is spiritual. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It is unchanging. It is over us. God's law, his commandments are good and right, given to you and I for his glory and are good. But we find as Christians, and the Apostle Paul is speaking here of this tension, this struggle, this war that is going on between our spirit and our flesh. It's like the tug-of-rope game. As kids, you guys played that game back and forth, but as adults, we're playing that spiritually, and really it's a tug-of-war between the flesh and the spirit. It's really up and down. The flesh pulls us down to the things of hell, to death and decay, and the spirit pulls us up to life and to joy. So as Christians, we have to wrap our minds around the truth that growing in our faith is understanding the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. It is real. But maybe you know that already. Well, what does it mean for us? Here's what stands out to me. The first thing is, is that that means you can be an honest Christian. There is nothing worse than a fake Christian. This means that we have 
permission to acknowledge that the struggle of sin in our life is real. The church should look like a hospital where broken people come in and acknowledge their wounds. We have permission to be honest Christians. And what that means for me and what it should mean for all of us is that we can walk in humility then. That we can take off our mask. That we don't have to pretend. That we can admit our mistakes to each other. We can admit our need for Jesus. I need Jesus Christ and his help in my life. I need the Holy Spirit. I need your help to keep me accountable. I need the church. I need fellowship. I need Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit. I can walk in humility. Because my struggle and war against sin is real. And the Bible says it's real. And the Apostle Paul, the great spiritual giant, says it's real. And it's real in him. And it's real in me. And it's real in you. And if that is the truth, then we can say, guess what? I suck at sin sometimes. So in the name of being honest, and I've really wrestled with this for the last couple of weeks, I'm just going to share way too much about my life. <laughs> so here are some of my flesh struggles. And there are many, but here are the ones that come up. The first one for me is anger. Anger is a thing in my life. For those of you that know me, you know that I'm a super passionate person. Most people feel things around five or six, and if they're passionate, they feel like eight, nine, ten. I'm at 50 all the time, all the time, all the time. You get me jacked up on coffee, it's even worse. That means my emotions, honestly, guys, they can be very, very strong. And in most cases, this really is a tremendous blessing to me because when I love someone, or I love something, I really love it. I really do. I mean, I love them with a passion. I love it with a passion, but it can be like Jekyll and Hyde. It can be a burden because the good side is passion. The bad side is anger. I grew up in a house that was unbelievably loving. I had the best parents, the incredible parents. I had an awesome dad, but he also had a very, very volatile temple, temper. He himself had a very troubled upbringing, and his dad, my grandfather, was a terribly physically abusive man. One of the memories I have of my dad's temper, one of the first memories I have, I would have been just a little guy, and my dad got so mad in his rage at something at work that he cocked back and he punched the refrigerator door. Guys, no lie, it fell off the hinges. Like the first two hinges just fell out, and I remember my mom swearing at him and my dad swearing and me being like, my dad just punched the refrigerator door and it fell off the hinges. <laughs> So as a younger man, like my dad, I learned to love because my dad was also very passionate, very loving, like a fire of love. I mean, he was amazing. But when he was angry, he got real angry. And likewise, when I loved something, I loved it. But when I got angry, I got very volatile. To my shame, lots of broken windows, lots of holes in walls, lots of stupid swearing, fights, screaming, tons of conflict, tons of arguing, trying to prove my point. God bless my sweet mom, who's with Jesus now, laughing at me being a dad. Just <laughs> laughing. One of the most evident works of Jesus' work in my life, of God's Holy Spirit in my life, has been the self-control that he has gifted me over the years when it comes to my emotion. It has been a wonderful work of God, and it is only God's work to learn, quite honestly, not always to fly off the handle, or argue, or rage, or disagree, or stupidly break stuff. I know it sounds ridiculous even to say it out loud, but that is in me. But there are too many times in my war against the flesh where I care to admit where I have lost my temper in my home around my family. It is so easy for me to lose my war against the flesh and swear and scream and look like an idiot. Too many times I've had to grab my kids and say, I am so sorry. 
to my wife, I am so sorry. To the pastors, there have been so many times I've had to apologize for them where I have to be like, guys, I got to get out of this meeting. I'm not, my, I'm not okay. I got to walk out. By God's unbelievable grace, and it is his grace, my kids and I are the best. We are the best friends. I love them. Sloppy love. I mean like affectionate, open mouth, kissing on the cheeks to my kids. My 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy is like, Dad, please don't scream you love me when you open up the door at school. Please don't. I'll be like, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's like... My wife is my best friend. She loves me. She brings out the best in me. My co-pastors are my heroes. They really are. They bring out the best in me. They still seem to like me around. But the reality is, is that my struggle against the flesh of my anger, it is real. It is embarrassing. It is a war for me. Here's the other one. Just confession time. Addiction. I have a very addictive personality. When I was 18 years old, my mom told me wisely these very words. Honey, be careful what you touch. And you do because whatever it is, It'll be the best thing for you or the worst thing for you. She's not a prophet, but she was right. She knows her son. That is true of me today at age 45. Another great proof of God's Holy Spirit in my life is sobriety. God has done awesome things in my life. He's turned me away from substance and alcohol abuse and a number of other stupid, immoral, addictive habits that are in me. I'm so thankful that the Lord has removed so much yuck in my heart and he has saved me and rescued me even to become somebody, by the way, who has any sort of ability to stand in front of you guys and talk about the Bible is the most humbling thing ever. Like, who am I to have any small leadership in front of the church? I'm so thankful that God has done that in my life. But if I'm honest, the temptations of my flesh, the war of my flesh, the desire to give in to addiction, vices, they are real for me every day. God didn't take them away from me. He did not take them away. Some people he does. He doesn't to me. I think about being stoned every day. What's that? Every day I wonder, is today the day it all crumbles? Now, God has been so faithful, and I believe he will continue to believe, be faithful to me, and carry me along. But if I'm honest, the way it works in my life is like, there's a vice. Oh, I've got to replace that vice with another vice. And then there's a habit, and I've got to get another habit for that habit. And I'm so glad that there are good vices like coffee, which is why I'm a spaz right now. That's a good one for me. <laughs> Sparkling water, love them. You've seen it. You hear it in the church. <laughs> Exercise, running. But honestly, guys, the truth is, is even sometimes those things can be a burden. I went to an overnighter last night, and I brought like 15 of my own waters, just carrying them around in my own bag. <laughs> my struggle against that part of my life is real. I have to admit it. Here's the last one, and then we'll move on. Fear and anxiety and insecurity. That is a real flesh pattern in my life. Fear, anxiety, and insecurity. Over the years, I've had coffee with hundreds of people, hundreds of, of you guys. And I've had people say things to me like, man, to be a pastor, you must have a lot of faith. To which I reply, I hope not. I don't know how many. Well, if you find it, give me some. I mean, I have a little, maybe less than a mustard seed. God has given me some faith. But before I land on faith, guys, admittedly, I seem to always wrestle with fear. Always. That's my pattern, anxiety and fear. I second-guess my, myself. I second-guess the Lord's goodness. I tend to feel unbelievably insecure. I worry about the outcome of a scenario. I picture the worst-case scenario. I worry about what people think, what's going to go wrong, what I might do. I focus on what I'm not good at or why somebody else is better at something than I am. In my marriage, my parenting, my pastoring, my music, my future, my relationships, my jobs, all of those things are such incredible blessings. But in all of them, first starts fear with me. And then i got to ran it in. It's a struggle in my flesh. It is very, very real. Okay. It takes a lot of vulnerability to say things like that. But that is what 
draws out of the word of God that we can say, be wise. Don't do it on stage like I am. Don't do that. <laughs> it can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating. But you know what? You're not alone. You're just not alone. You are not alone. You're not alone. And when you admit your struggle against flesh, it can lead to this unbelievable honesty and transparency and vulnerability and even intimacy with the right people. We can be honest Christians. We can walk in humility. But here's the other thing it's a sign of. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. C.S. Lewis said it in a book. He said, ask Hitler if he was a bad man. Hitler would have said no. Ask Lincoln if he was a bad man. He would have said to a great degree. Let me give you a picture this is my son, one of them. He's rad. His name is Sol. The other day he was sitting at our kitchen table. Let me just tell you a little bit about Sol. He's 10 years old. He's our most creative player. On any given second, no lie, he's pretending to be a warrior. He thinks he's in a movie or he's a monster or he's a rock star. That box that says no touch or else death is filled with real knives <laughs> that he carries around. I'm an awesome dad. So he plays so hard. He really is a hard player. It's so fun to listen to him play. On this particular morning, the shades were lower in our kitchen. It was a little darker. And my sweet wife, she looked at Sol's neck, and there was this dark patch of dirt on it. And she said, dude, you're, you need to take a shower. You are so dirty. I can see dirt on your neck. And he said, no, no, it's not dirt. It's a tan. So needless to say, we turn on the lights and open the shades. And it was dirt. It was actual dirt <laughs> that we wiped off and had to take a shower. Real dirt. Okay, this is such a dumb analogy, but you'll get it. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Here's my point. The closer you get to the light, the more you see your smudges. I know. You're welcome. It's true, though. Listen, it's true. Because the reality is, is that the closer you get to the light of the world in Jesus Christ, the more and more you see the junk in your own life. You see it in your own life. You see your own flesh. You see your own wickedness that lurks in your heart. And you recognize, I need Jesus. It's a mark of spiritual maturity. I'm close to the light. So the apostle Paul knew that this war against the flesh was real. He walked in humility and transparency and honesty and vulnerability and maturity and admitted it to the churches. But he also knew something else that you and I need to realize. You have been born again. We are born again. This is how Jesus says it in John chapter 3. He says, I tell you the truth, speaking to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Then he continued to say, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus says as believers, we are born again. It is a mystery. It is a miracle. It is done of the Spirit inside of us. And when a person is born again, amazing things happen. You are given new desires, deeper desires. Over the years, I've heard it explained like this to me. When you become a Christian, Jesus changes your want-tos. 
You used to want to do this, but you're a believer, and now you want to do that. Here's how the Apostle Paul explains it again. Verse 15, I don't understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. New desires. Or verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good. He has new desires, not of the old life, but of the new life. All of us need to recognize that we have flesh-filled desires, but our deepest desires, our deeper desires, those are the ones from Jesus and the Holy Spirit were born again. Look in your own life. Just examine this for a minute. All of you are here right now. Because you have an intention, no matter how big or how small, you have an intention to learn about Jesus and about his word. You are in church tonight because you have been given at your deepest level, your truest self, a new desire. Of course there was a time in your life when you didn't care about coming to church. But now here you are, new desires. Maybe you're a young man or woman who's been blessed enough to be raised in a Christian home with loving parents and good Bible teachings, but you have a little brother or a little sister or an older brother and an older sister, and you love to push their buttons. <laughs> but something new's happened in you, and you become a Christian, and then you start to kind of feel bad about that, or maybe you just want to want to feel bad about that. New desires. Maybe you're a teenager who used to so easily keep secrets from your parents or your teachers or your coaches, but now you know better and you have this weird thing happening in your life where you're like, I want to grow in integrity and trustworthiness. New desires. What about all of us? Ask yourself, in your own life, do you have this new desire of wanting to do what God says? Do you want to trust and learn the word of God, the Bible? Is your inner being sometimes at war against the outer desires? Do you know what's right in your mind and get frustrated when you don't do it? Do you hate who you are in the flesh, angry, violent, addicted, fearful, and you want to live in the spirit? Do you feel beat up when you lose your war, when you battle the flesh? New desires, deeper desires, truer desires, truest version of yourself. At the very core, Jesus Christ has changed your deepest desires to seek those out first of just your pleasure and your sin and your passions that pull you to hell and giving you new desires that are from the Lord that you know lead to life. But here's the deal. He's not only given us new desires, he's also absolutely changed us. He's given us a new identity. Not just new desires, we're new people. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says it like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's born again, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Men and women... Christians, you are not just the old person with the old nature with a new desire. You are a new person, a different person with a new identity with new desires. That's how it works. There's a war, but you are new. Look, okay, so look, look at what we've learned already in Romans in the last 21 weeks. 
Who we were versus who we are. Romans 1 through 4. We were unrighteous. That's who our identity was. Now we are righteous. We were enemies of God. Now we're friends with God. We were fallen in Adam, incapable of pleasing God because of our sin. Now, identity raised in Christ. We were spiritually dead, but now we're alive. We were slaves to sin, but now we're free from the power of sin. We were under the law. Now we are under grace, as Caleb taught us last week. And tonight we were in the flesh, and now we are in the spirit. We are not just given new desires at our deepest core. We are new at the deepest core. So here's what this means. God looks at you, and he sees you and I, things, the world as completed, but still in process. Okay, so here's how I've learned to come to understand it. It's this tension of the already and the not yet. It's the tension of the already and the not yet. Look at this verse in Ephesians. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. For God raised us from the dead. This is now, present. For God raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us, present, with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Present. Wait, what? He raised us and we're seated with him in the heavenly realms because of Jesus. But you and I look around and I say, well, this looks like Utah. <laughs> I'm not in heaven. But don't you see? God sees it as completed. But we're still in the process. The end is certain. We're still in the journey. This is who you used to be over here dead. This is who you're going to be fully alive. But right now we're in the tug of war. This is where we're at today. So what that means is, is your position before God, your forgiveness, your new identity is certain. It's secure it's sure through Jesus. But the practice over sin, what the Bible calls sanctification, this war against sin, it's ongoing. So how does that work? Again, another verse that will blow your mind. I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, one, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wait, what? He made perfect us perfect forever. Done. Those who are being made holy? This truth is so rich. Positionally before the Lord, you're perfect. It's done. You're seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. But from day to day, we are being made holy. We are sanctified. We are in process. The end is certain, but we are in the journey. But listen, you've got to get this knocked into your mind. So do I. The end is absolutely certain. It is not up for grabs. It's certain. There is going to be, Christian, a perfect you, a healed you, a transformed you with Jesus, no longer struggling. You won't be sick. You're not frustrated. You're not fearful or addicted. You're no longer in the war. You will be absolutely certainly the very best version of yourself and you will be adoring the Lord Jesus and creation in heaven and all of God's people. And listen, listen, here's what he'll be doing. He'll be delighting over who he always knew you would become. Always knew it. Always knew it. So he looks at us as perfect positionally. He knows what the end is going to be. We are already seated with him. He knows how it goes. And here we are. In the struggle, 
walking in the power of grace and our new identity with deeper desires. And so what does that look like for you tonight, Christian? Maybe you're a brand new Christian and you don't know, okay, I, want, I sense the newer identity. I sense a desire. Well, maybe that means you need to open your Bible. Start reading your Bible. Ask somebody how to do that. Maybe you need to learn how to pray. Get baptized. Maybe it's learn how to sing and worship out loud and not be ashamed. Or maybe you know you need new friends because your old friends suck. <laughs> maybe you know you need to get really good advice or regularly gather inside of the church. What is it for you? Because the end is certain. Look at, I love this. Oh my gosh. I am sure of this, says the Apostle Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It will be finished. We're in process. So in humility, we understand there's a struggle. The fight is real. There's deeper desires. We want to follow and honor Jesus. We understand that we're positionally secure. We have been given a newer, deeper identity. But you're sitting here saying, okay, how do I win my war then? How do I win? Well, you have new power. New identity, new desires, new power. But here's the deal, guys. The power is not in yourself. It's not you. Paul has come to this realization, if we read it honestly, that the law has revealed his own sin and the struggle between his flesh and the spirit, and he needs God's help. Look at what he says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's where he got. It's the cry of a man who's sick and tired of being sick and tired. The sin that occurs in his life, he wants help. Some translations say the word wretched means a weary soldier. Others have defined it as this, a miserable, afflicted, afflicted, wretched weight and burden of slavery. Which might be the truer translation because it throws back to verse 14 when the Apostle Paul says, I've been sold as a slave to sin. It's this language of a slave market. Paul is saying, I've been a slave to sin. I cannot bear the weight. I can't bear the burden. I'm miserable. I don't want to be a slave any longer. I need someone to save me. I need to be rescued. Who will rescue me? On his own, he's drowning. But you and I both know that you can't save a drowning man who's flailing around trying to save himself. Any lifeguard would tell you that. You have to wait until the flailing man stops flailing because you could get hit in the head. You could get pulled down. What they're waiting for is the drowning person just, to, just this. I need your help. I can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can't. Rescue. That's what it means. Rescue. If you and I think that we have enough in ourselves that can work out our sinful flesh, we are absolutely deeply deceived. If you think you are strong enough to do it on your own, you are deceived. If we think that our desires can be motivated enough to overcome the evil that lurks in our heart, we have yet to come to this place where Paul is. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? <laughs> I'm, I'm, all, I'm out. Maybe you're caught in this place and you're sick of the same sin and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and I'm a slave to my old desires and my old passions and I'm dealing with the same things over and over again and there's so much guilt, so much shame. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm tired. Who will help me? I've done the programs. I've done the fame. I've done the experience. I've done the money. I've done the acceptance. And you say, who will rescue me from this body of death? You know when the Apostle Paul says this body of death? This is amazing to me. I learned this. Many commentators believe that the Apostle Paul is referring to a, f a form of punishment in the Roman Empire he would have known about. Under the Roman Emperor Marcus Macrinus, the sentence for murder, this is graphic, was taking the corpse of the person who had been murdered and latching it to the offender. 
They would force the offender, the murderer, to walk around and live with the corpse of the murdered body until eventually, because of decay, disease, rotting, an actual murderer would die. The body of death was latched to him, and he was forced to carry around the remnant of sin. I did some digging on this. Here's a detailed explanation. A living man or woman was tied to a rotting corpse, face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, limb-to-limb, with an obsessive exactitude in which each part of the body corresponded with its matching putrefying counterpart. Shackled to their rotting double, the man or woman was left to decay to avoid the starvation of the victim and to ensure the rotting bonds between the living and dead were fully established. The punishers would continue to feed the condemned appropriately. Only once the superficial difference between the corpses and the living body started to rot away through the agency of worms which bridged the two bodies, establishing a continuity between them, did they stop feeding the living. Once both the living and the dead had turned black through putrefaction, they would unshackle the body. Paul had this in mind when he spoke of his sinful nature, the remnant of who he was. The sinful nature latched having the same effect. He's saying, it's killing me, destroying me, the disease, the decay, the infection from my old life, it's eating me up, I need help. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Best verse in Romans chapter 7. The power is found in Jesus. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rescuer. Here's how I've understood this. There's the Lord, the law, and your life. Up until this point, the Apostle Paul has been discussing his relationship with the law. But now he's finding and ending with his hope found in the Lord. Let me give you a quick picture. Over your life and my life lives the law. And like a mirror, it shows us our own sin, our own temptations, and our own failures. And time and time again, what we try to do is climb through the law up to the Lord. But you see, over the law is the Lord. We try to work up to God. No, no, no. It's that God came down through the law and its power, and he came to us. The Lord reached into humanity. And when you read the Gospels, this is what you will find. Jesus took the law upon himself. He lived under the burden of the law. In the Gospels, it says that Jesus came and obeyed every command, every jot, every tittle of the law as Lord and man. He obeyed it all. Yet still, in his great love, Jesus decided to perform the most incredible act of love that could ever be or ever will be performed. And though he was perfect and though he was without fault, he decided to take upon himself our body of decay and die so that he could gift us new identity, new power, new desires, forgiveness, eternal life, position, security. It's the great exchange. Don't you see? What the Lord has done, he has changed our position forever under the law. Under the law, the position for us forever went from guilty to non-guilty. Forever. He took it. And then he gifted us the Holy Spirit. 
in our war against sin that reminds us of mercy, that gives us strength and power and heals us. Yes, it's true that we wage this war against sin, but as a compassionate, loving, gracious Lord, he gifted us his spirit, it changed our identity, he gave us new desires, he gave us new power, and he begins a change process in you and I that he already sees as done. And yet we're working through it day to day. Because Jesus doesn't stop what he begins. The Lord went through the law, carried the law, and gave you and I his life in our life. So how do you overcome your battle with sin? Jesus Christ. Sometimes we go, okay, I don't know that I really want to hear that answer. I don't really know, because here's what can happen, and I'm almost done here, guys. Just give me a second. I'm almost finished. Too often we're looking for this one-size-fits-all formula to kind of get us through this sin. We're looking for like the silver bullet to remove the struggle. But it's not immediate. It's not Jekyll and Hyde. It's not a potion. It's over a lifetime for Jesus to give us power over sin. You know what needs to happen? He needs to become Lord over our life. We need to put him over our life. Jesus isn't just a magic eraser for our sin, though he did, by the way, erase them all. Jesus is also described in the Bible as our shepherd, our king, our brother, our friend, and our Lord. Think about your friend. Friends don't just use each other selfishly for their own benefit and then walk away. Shepherds don't just guide a sheep one day and then leave them to die. Kings don't rule over kingdoms for a day. They do it for a lifetime. For Jesus to be our power and rescue us, he has to become our Lord. Effectively, he's the Lord over all. We know that it is completed, but have you allowed yourself to say to him, Lord, you be Lord of my life? Here's what Peter said, the disciple, but in your hearts, revere, other translations say, set apart Christ as your Lord. In your heart, make him Lord. Have you decided to make Jesus your Lord? The power over sin in your life, it's Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. It's walking with Jesus. It's yielding to Jesus. It's being with Jesus. It's abiding with Jesus. And too often I hear people come to know Jesus because they feel like he's a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's fire insurance. They want to experience forgiveness, but they don't really want to know him. They think that becoming a Christian means that they have this great experience and awesome health and great wealth and awesome kids and great marriages and great status. They think that becoming a Christian means you never struggle with sin again, or you're never bored, or there's never a setback, or there's no longing. They take the verse John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. They come to think that as, well, that must mean that I got a bunch of stuff and lots of happiness and popularity, and I never struggle again. But that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, I've come to give you stuff. He said, I came to give you life. Again, almost done, but think about this in your own mind. The immature Christian or the non-believer assumes that the Christian life is like a fireworks show. It's bold and exciting and awe-inspiring, but you and I both know that it lasts for just a minute and it ends in smoke. The mature believer sees the Christian life, their walk with Jesus, like a fire. You see, you can build around a fire. You can warm yourself around a fire. You can eat around a fire. You can build cities around a fire. You can build a life around a fire. It's not always exciting, but it's beautiful. It's dangerous, but it's long-lasting. I have come to bring you life. That means there's moments of suffering, experiences of victory, experiences of sorrow. Our walk with Jesus is about our whole life with him. How do we overcome all of this? We know and we rest and we live in Jesus.
We recognize the struggle is real. I can walk in humility. I can admit my failures. I've been given new desire, new power, and that power, that rescue is Jesus. I can make him Lord over my life. And people ask me, how do you make the Lord Lord over your life? Well, here's my section of verses, and then I'm going to pray. No formula. It's just this. John 15, 1 through 5. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Know Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. Obey Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Be honest with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Learn to love Jesus. And he will rescue you. Lord, thank you that that is true. It is not pretend. You are good. You are our rescuer. You are our God. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to your children through the word of God, through the truth of this message. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would walk away different, more in love with you, more in love with one another. We ask, Jesus, that you would help us to be admitting of our failures to the right people to crying out to you, God, for victory, that we would not try to muster up our own strength on our own, but Lord, that we would just finally rest in you and make you Lord over our life. We say all these things, Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen. Let's stand up, sing one last.